Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. Abraham Heschel said the following statement. I want you to listen to it very closely and we'll unpack it a bit. The very existence of the world is contingent upon right and wrong. And its secret is God's involvement in history. History is a turmoil. Survival or destruction are equally possible. But justice will decide. Righteousness will redeem. Let me read it again. The very existence of the world is contingent upon the reality of right versus wrong. And the secret behind right versus wrong is God's direct involvement in the affairs of men in history. History is in turmoil. And survival or destruction are both equally possible. But justice will ultimately decide and righteousness will ultimately redeem. Isaiah chapter 33 verses 5 and 6 says, Exalted is the Lord, he who dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the permanence and the stability of your times. That's a verse you may want to write in large letters and keep somewhere where you can read it fairly often. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the permanence and the stability of our times. He is the rock that we hide in, and his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. If you remember last time, we talked about the, the fact that the words justice and righteousness are so closely related that quite often in Scripture they are interchangeable. But they're not completely interchangeable or else there would be no need for two separate words. Now in Hebrew, mishpat, justice, and tzedekah, righteousness, are so often quoted together that most people tend to think that that's just kind of a a typical poetic Hebrew way of saying the same thing twice, just kind of that poetic couplet. Um, But let's examine it for a bit. Mishpat was a word that originally referred to an edict of a judge. So it can mean justice, or it can mean a norm of society, or it can mean a legal right someone has, or it can mean a law. But tzedekah, righteousness, is a little different. You might you might understand it better if I say this. It takes a righteous person to do what is just. If the word justice ultimately ends up meaning that which is right, that which is fair, that which is uh, according to what is truth and righteousness, then justice is a noun but righteousness is the verb that affirms and makes possible that noun. It takes a righteous person to do what is just. Now, in paganism, justice was symbolized by two pictures that I want to just refer to quickly. First, there's the famous scales, the scales of justice. We use that phrase still in our vernacular. And what are scales? Well, scales have to do with balancing. Uh, And the idea was that what is just is giving everyone what is their due. 
making sure everybody's paid correctly. So the, the, the idea of the scales of justice is the balancing of the books or the balancing of the equation. Uh, what is fair, what is equitable, equality. You hear that terminology now all the time, don't you? Uh, equality and uh, social justice, those words thrown together. We'll talk a little more about that in a moment. The number eight was a symbol of justice in the ancient world. Eight being divisible by two, producing four and four. And so the equal balance there, divided by two, four, equal balance. The scales also were often seen, uh, symbolized also with a sword. Now, the symbol of the sword is not primarily to represent the power of the government to, to uh, enforce law. No, the idea of the, of the sword in the original symbolism of the scales of justice is the sword is that which cuts through to the real issue. The idea is not just power, although that eventually is brought in, but more than that, it has to do with cutting things clearly. But the trouble with all these images is this. They're mechanical. They're precise, but they are mechanical. They are impassionate, but they are heartless. Hebrew justice does not picture Anything like what I just described. No, Amos chapter 5 verse 24 says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. What, what comes to your mind when you hear of rolling waters? Well, a surging, unstoppable movement for one thing. Water is also the giver of life. For another, another thing. And it's a dominating power when it's unleashed, like it's described in Amos, a, a mighty rushing stream of water. We tend to use the word stream to refer to a small uh, creek, but that's not the way it's used in Hebrew here. It's more the idea of a tidal wave. Let justice roll down like unstoppable waters and righteousness like a tidal wave of life-giving, dominating power, a movement that can't be stopped. That has much more passion and life in it than the pagan concept. Then there's also the, the picture of the blindfolded virgin. Why was she blindfolded? Well, it it had a good purpose in that symbolism. It had to do with the rightful caution of mind against illusions or showing partiality. But it was also mechanical, as if the life of a man or woman is devoid of personhood, as if unique issues could be shrunk down to mere generalizations, there is a point at which strict justice cannot be righteous. Do you hear what I said? There is a point where strict mechanical justice cannot be righteous. God's justice is not blind. God's justice is not mechanical. It's not blind, Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Hebrews 4, 13. There is none who are not fully seen and known by him, but all things are naked and open before his eyes. Psalm 90, verse 8. Our iniquities are before you, and all our secrets are bare in the light of your presence. God's justice is not mechanical. Jeremiah 9 verse 23 and 
24, let the wise man glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And knows what about God? That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. Isaiah 61 verse 8. In the Lord, uh, the Lord loves justice. I hate robbery and wrong, says the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 11, verse 7. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. Psalm 45, 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Sheer mechanical justice is unjust. It can even be satanic. Justice may be legal, but unrighteous. Well, that's not a revelation, is it? That's what we see all around us. When the Bible warns of the day of lawlessness that will typify the close of the age, uh, I used to think of lawlessness uh, as, you know, picture, I always pictured people in the streets robbing and rioting, as we do see that. But that's not the primary source of injustice and lawlessness in our culture, is it? No, that that secondary level of lawlessness in the streets was preceded and actually propagated by a much more subtle and invisible and hypocritical lawlessness of three-piece suits in closed doors in big office buildings and in the capitals of governments where crooked dealings and mistreatment of the poor was uh, handed down in the form of business deals and lawmaking. And so the real ultimate law lawlessness doesn't begin in the streets. That's where it manifests secondarily. And it begins in the higher echelons of the culture there's no there's no place in the in the united states more lawless than washington dc or various other capitals of states so sheer mechanical justice is not only sometimes unjust and unrighteousness unrighteous but is even satanic Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1, Woe to them that decree unrighteous decrees. And Psalm 94, verse 20, There's no fellowship between the Lord and any unrighteous government which propagates evil by the means of passing unrighteous laws. You need to read the whole chapter there of of, uh, Psalm 94, the entire chapter speaks to this. There's no fellowship between God and an unrighteous government who propagates evil by the means of passing unrighteous laws. They're laws. They are, according to the justice systems of that government, legal, but in God's eyes, they're wicked. God's justice always has an element of mercy in it. In fact, I'll I'll go farther than that and say that as we study this further, and we will go into this in more detail in, in future times together, there is not a difference between God's justice and God's mercy. They are directly related and sometimes are interchangeable. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, The Lord is waiting to be gracious to you, Therefore, he rises up in order to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. When justice is dehumanized, it ceases to be justice. It becomes a tool in the wrong hands. It'll become a murder weapon. Let me read that one more time. When justice is dehumanized, 
when it just becomes a system, when it just becomes a stack of rules and regulations and, and legal, legalisms, it ceases to be justice. Then it becomes a tool. A tool for what? A tool to some degree for organized civilization to function, like the law codes of the United States in many areas. Some of, uh, some of our law codes are they're not the best, but they do manage to give boundaries and definitions so that we can function as a nation. Then there's the tax code, which is uh, a tool in the hands of unscrupulous government people to uh, make it difficult for uh, working people and the poor to function. But then there's the ultimate misuse of law uh, that becomes a murder weapon, as it did in the hands of the Nazis. Now, God's concern for justice is never mechanical. It is always personal. Psalm 97, verse 2. Clouds and deep darkness are round about him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What does that mean? Clouds and deep darkness are round about him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is basically what it means. Clouds and deep darkness refers to the mysterious, unknown, and unknowable aspect of deity. The mysteries of God that have not been revealed and that cannot be revealed, uh, at least as far as we know. We can't make God reveal them, and we can't uh, pursue them and uncover them if we want to. Deuteronomy 29 says, in verse 29, the secret things belong only to the Lord, but the things which have been, been revealed belong to us and to our children. There are aspects of God that cannot be comprehended just by nature of the fact that he's God. And this verse is making reference to that fact. But the point of the verse is ultimately this. There may be mysteries about God, but there are no mysteries about God that would make a place for unrighteousness and injustice in God. Clouds and thick darkness may be in the picture, but when it comes to knowing what God is really like and what God is all about, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, as we referred just a few moments ago from Jeremiah chapter 9 where God says, let the wise man, if he wants to rejoice in something, let him rejoice in this, that he knows and understands me. And what does he need to know and understand about God? That God is a God of righteousness, justice, and loving kindness. And I want you to notice how all three of these words, though they are separate words, and we need all three to symbolize separate ideas. When it comes to God, the ultimate source of these three words, he couples them together as though they are one and the same thing, almost as if he's saying uh, righteousness, justice, and loving kindness uh, as one word. Because in God's economy, they are one and the same thing. God is love. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll examine that more uh, as we go. So mystery is not the ultimate about God. I want to say that carefully because obviously when we're talking about God, we're, we're going to be talking about mysteries that are beyond us, in, in, in multiplicity of ways that we don't even have language to describe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell, who was caught up into the third heaven where he heard mysteries that he could not communicate. Uh, there's various 
ways of interpreting that verse. Some say, well, he was commanded not to tell what he heard, but I think it's more realistic to say, I heard things that were so far beyond my capacity that it's impossible for me to tell it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. But he he obviously hasn't revealed everything because we couldn't, we don't have the capacity for it. Yes, mystery has certainly got its place. But mystery is not what God is ultimately interested in you thinking about where he's concerned, when you think about God. It's not mystery that's ultimate. It's meaning that's ultimate. And what does God tell us is the ultimate meaning that he wants us to to comprehend? Let him who rejoices rejoice in this, that he knows and understands me and knows that I am a God of justice, righteousness, and loving kindness. God himself is the meaning, not justice. I want to read a quote here from Abraham Heschel on the whole subject of justice. He was saying these words in response to a a man who had stated in uh, a writing that uh, the Jews had lifted justice to a a place of exaltation above uh, every other concept and that it almost almost seemed as if God himself was subject to the concept of justice. Heschel says in response to that, immutable justice, justice that has been raised to a place higher than God. Immutable justice raises justice to a position of supremacy, denying to any other principle the power to temper it, regarding it as an absolute. Then the world would exist for the sake of maintaining justice rather than justice existing for the sake of maintaining the world. Now carried to its extreme, This idea sets up a false dichotomy of world and justice, betraying the truth that the survival of the world, in other words, the fulfillment of the purpose of the world, that's what he means by the survival of the world, is itself a requirement of justice. He's saying, look, the whole purpose of justice is to accommodate the survival and fulfillment of the purpose of the world. The world doesn't exist to make justice happen. Justice happens to make the world carry forward. He goes on to say, God's concern for justice grows out of his compassion for man. Scripture does not refer to some divine relationship to an absolute principle or an idea that's called justice. Scripture is all about God's heart for man and his relationship to all men. Justice is not important for its own sake. Now when you think about what I just said, justice is not important for its own sake. When you hear people screaming for uh social justice. It's always difficult to know exactly what it is they mean by that, what it is they think needs to be accomplished to achieve it, and uh, whether they really have a true concept of justice for all or not. And later on we're going to examine the whole question of justice for all and what justice can and cannot be on the earthly level. Justice is not important for its own sake. The validity of justice and the motivation for its existence lies in the blessing that it brings to mankind. For justice is not an abstraction, a mere value. Justice exists in relation to a person, 
and is something done by a person to or for another person. An act of injustice is condemned not because a law has been broken, but because a person has been hurt. And God takes this very personally. For instance, Exodus 22, verse 22 and following, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will hear them and I will act on their behalf for I am compassionate. He actually makes a pretty frightening threat there to them when he says, if they cry to me after you've injured them, I will hear it. Now, that that truth is true for every widow and every orphan that exists on the planet in all times, in all ages, and in all circumstances. Just because you and I cannot see how ultimate justice may be worked on their behalf, I assure you, not one child Not one widow, not one innocent, defenseless person has ever been injured that will go undealt with by God in his justice and and truth. Nothing will just fade away into the mystery of uh, the invisible Everything will be naked and open and brought to its ultimate conclusion. Now, in philosophy, uh, through Kant and various others, there was an idea that you could separate law from God. Kant, for instance, tried to propagate or did propagate the idea that law uh, and all the principles of justice and uh, ethics can be developed by the human mind apart from God. And uh, this idea, sadly, has given us a godless legal system. And of course, once the law is separated from God, the lawgiver and the author and power behind true justice, then you end up with the manifold injustices that we are now seeing propagated in almost every area of our existence. There's hardly an area of life now where unjust laws are not being multiplied and unjust uh, behavior is is uh, the result. When you separate law from God, you make law a law unto itself. When you elevate law as a law unto itself, you elevate law above God as if God must answer to the law. There's actually people who seem to have that idea that, uh, well, we better not do anything to disobey the law. Well, what if the law has disobeyed God? It's already clear in Scripture what we're to do when we are in the face of unjust laws. Thank God Martin Luther King knew better than that. He knew that an unjust law was no law at all, as have many, many other saints through history, Uh, right back to the apostles who said, whether it's right or wrong in your eyes for us to uh, preach the, the, the gospel, you have to decide. But As for us, we will not disobey God by ceasing to preach the name of Jesus. Uh, We will will speak his name. We will preach the gospel. So when you separate God from law, law becomes a law to itself. Then law gets elevated above God. Then ultimately law becomes God. And then finally law replaces God and pushes him out. And that's where we are now in this this current culture. See, crime is not a violation of a law. Crime is a sin against the living God. 
Psalm 51, verse 6, Against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight, Lord. Now, not only is it against God and God only that we've sinned, but here's the wonderful news. If God is not subject to obeying a law above him that he has to protect as if it's some kind of... uh, you know, like the law of the Medes and the Persians. You know, the king of the Medes and the Persians, Darius, could not alter the law. Once he had spoken that Daniel was to be put in the lion's den, and he said uh, it was the law of the Medes and the Persians, then even the king himself couldn't reverse it. So he was in agony all night, wondering if Daniel was surviving, wondering if Daniel's God could save him. God is not under the law of the Medes and the Persians, or any other law, any other universal law. God is God. And so God doesn't have to obey a law. Sometimes, I know I may have made this error myself in times past. hope I didn't, but I probably did, since I had a tendency to copy other people thinking they knew more than me, and so we both fell in the ditch. But the idea that God had to obey certain laws, and that's what produced Calvary, uh, that's, that's a very easily questioned and rightly questioned idea that has some problems. We'll look at that more, hopefully, in sessions to come. But crime is not a violation of the law. Crime is a sin against a living, personal God who takes it personally. And so David rightly says, against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. But because God is free, because God can relate to us beyond some legal definition of justice, because God doesn't have to obey anything except his own heart, then David also can say in Psalm 132 verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? You you are full of mercy and justice. And mercy and justice are not in odds with one another. They are actually directly related to one another. And before we finish this series in Nightlight that we're uh, addressing on these issues, I pray that if you don't already know it, you will gain a, a solid, unmovable security and a deeper love and honor for the Lord over the question of righteousness, justice, and loving kindness. God seems to want you and me to know this more than he wants us to know anything. Because he says it in different ways all through the scriptures. Remember his revelation to Moses when, when Moses says, who are you really? What, what, show me your glory. Tell me who you are. Tell me what you're like. And the Lord, the Lord says to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord God. And then God begins to unfold himself to Moses as much as Moses was able to comprehend it. And in that unfolding of God's heart and nature to Moses, he makes clear that he is the God above all gods. There is none like him. That he is a God of relationship who seeks and desires relationship with Moses and with Israel and with all the world, and that God is righteous and just, that he will not ignore unrighteousness, that he will correct and punish unrighteousness that is carried on in rebellion. But notice that he says, 
I, I will deal with it to the third and fourth generation, but my mercy is unto a thousand generations. And the psalmist later says, God's angry is but for a moment. His mercy endures forever. There's not a tug of war inside God between justice and mercy. God's not schizophrenic. God, God doesn't have two personalities. Now, uh, the rabbis thought that there might be some element of declension in God. And they saw in the name of God, the, the Lord God, they saw uh, Yahweh, Lord, as the merciful and loving and relational part of God. And they saw Elohim, the creator, the power, the mysterious part of God that is unknowable. They saw that as the part of God that manifests unnegotiable justice. Well, I think they were wrong. And the reason I think they were wrong is because the ultimate revelation of God that he is trying to, to communicate, even in the Old Covenant, as I've quoted already three times from Jeremiah 9 and other parts, by the time you get to the full revelation of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no declension between God's justice, God's love, God's mercy. So, what have we got so far? Man is free, but only in a limited way. But he's free to sin. He's free to set in motion forces that produce the opposite of what God wants. God is totally free. He's not limited by anything, anybody, or any concept. And in his unlimited freedom, he hates sin, hates evil. And the reason he hates evil is because he loves man. I don't know, I don't know if I, I need to insult anybody's intelligence by saying that more than once, but I had to hear it over and over. Man, maybe I'm just thicker than most people in the skull, but maybe not the skull, maybe the heart. <clears throat> God's anger at sin is not because sin insults him, although it does. God's rage against wickedness and, and evil, the wrath of God, is not, is not some angry retaliation of a temper tantrum levied against someone who has insulted God's uh, majesty, although that is included in the whole idea. But if you read the whole scripture from, from cover to cover, you will not see manifestations of wrath levied against the wicked because they have insulted God necessarily. I guess the closest example that, I, that comes to my mind is Isaiah 38, where uh, the, the Syrians have come and, and challenged Hezekiah and the armies of Judah, and the challenge they make is that uh, we've conquered this God, and we've conquered that God, and we've conquered the other God, little g, and your God is just like their gods, little g. And we're going to conquer Judah just like we conquered them. And it's, it's, it's pretty easy to turn that into a sermon, as I've done many times, of, of God saying, you know, you, you, you really signed your own death warrant when you made that statement because 185,000 of them died in, their, in the night smitten not by God but by one angel I mean God God didn't come down and do it one one angel one little angel if I could say it that way did it uh, but 
I think we got to be careful, even in interpreting the story the way I just interpreted it, that we're not interpreting it as God being vengeful in a in a vindictive, angry, cruel way. Uh, there's too many scriptures that only say what the story has to tell us about the events, but it doesn't give us the background in the invisible realm of what how God deals with those people. You know, God's not put off by death. He's He's Lord over death, and so um, yeah, He He made it very clear to the Assyrians. It, it's not a very wise thing to say that Yahweh is just like other gods, uh, but still. I don't think that the heart of God in that story is one of uh, you made me mad and I'm going to stomp on you like a roach. Because I don't think that's in God's character at all. And we'll, we'll, dis, we'll explore that question more uh, in days to come. Uh, God will destroy all evil and yet he will save man. How? Well, obviously, that whole statement leads ultimately only one place, to the cross. It's only at the cross where ultimately these difficult questions about justice, mercy, love, righteousness, it's only in the cross that these things become uh, clearer. They're always elements of mystery to it but one thing you can rest assured of as I've stated already by quoting Jeremiah 9 and other places the thing God wants you to to know about him is that you can know about him that he is loving true trustworthy just righteous and holy and that none of those terms contradict one another nor are they in conflict with one another. So that when you come before him, whether it's in joy and freedom and worship, or when you're ashamed of yourself because you have failed again, he's the same either way. His love for you doesn't ebb and flow or rise and fall with your behavior His capacity to forgive and cleanse you is not dependent on how how well you work your way back into his presence because there is no working your way back. His justice and his mercy are not in opposition to one another. Remember again, let me read one more time that verse that most of us maybe have never even considered much less digested properly and taken into our, our hearts and into our imaginations and into our memory, that God has mercy on us, and in that mercy, he's manifesting his justice. Isaiah 30, verse 18, I'll read it again. The Lord is waiting so that he can be gracious to you. Therefore, he rises up in order to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. There's a lot of terrible suffering in the lives of many believers. I know because I've I've dealt with them and I've been in their shoes. Uh, the, the, The religious imagination without the revelation of the Holy Spirit guiding us to the real God can become in the hands of the enemy a tool. Remember a while ago I mentioned that the law can become a tool, justice can become a tool, and in the wrong hands it can become a tool of injustice. Justice becomes a tool of injustice. Like Isaiah says in one point, or Amos, I think the prophet Amos says, you have turned justice into poison. Uh, I always think of Javert in Les Miserables. 
the police inspector who, well, he's legally accurate, but he's terribly unrighteous and unjust. And is a picture, really, of uh, Satan, of the accuser, the prosecutor. It's going to take a, a, a whole time together to unpack this uh, truth, but I want to I want to get it into your thinking now, so you can begin to prepare for us to go into it in more detail. Um, this is this is a mysterious and difficult subject that we must wrestle through, especially now in this age where there is so much unrighteousness and injustice, and there are those uh, screaming for. Uh, justice in in uh, and yet having no conception of the meaning of justice and no desire to bring real justice, but only a desire to bring a form of justice that is only a tool in the hands of injustice. And I, I said a while ago that uh, justice, mechanical justice, justice cut off from righteousness. Justice that is mechanical, functional, legalistic. It may serve a purpose as far as giving definition and perimeter and functionality to a culture, but you have that in North Korea. You have that in, in China. You have that in Saudi Arabia. You have this, uh, this law, this justice. Uh, God hates all of those things. And eventually, he will destroy them. But uh, let me just say for now, in our in our closing moments, and we'll we'll revisit this in great detail in the next session. But injustice in the hands of the justice system begins as a cold, calculating, bureaucratic legality, which we've all encountered on more or less uh, levels. Then it goes from irritating bureaucracy to cold, mechanical, calculating uh, misuse of people. Well, okay, uh, a computer pops out your speeding ticket that you you, you, uh, failed to pay 10 years ago because he got lost in the system and for whatever reason you didn't uh, have proper awareness of needing to take care of it. So they come and, and take you off to jail. That's that's a justice system that's just mechanically out of control. Or recently, I, I mean, one of my friends years ago, uh, not recently, but years ago, his father was uh, sheriff pulled up in the front yard and came and arrested him for a, 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 a library book uh, that he had failed to turn in. Uh, another person I know was arrested for a $2 uh, imbalance in some uh, government agency, a $2 imbalance. I mean, we all know. I, mean, I don't need to list these kinds of things. We all know these kinds of foolish things. But when a culture loses... The, the meaning of justice and, and begins to float off into legalism and insipid foolishness ruled over by bureaucracies controlled by pencil-pushing bureaucrats who just draw a check uh, with no conception of relationship to either God or man, but just, just, a, just a functionality. Uh, just a, a a cog in the in the justice machinery. Then it it won't stay in that realm for very long. It, it once a culture reaches that point, then the tool of uh, justice becomes a weapon in the hands of evil, and ultimately it becomes a murder weapon in the hands of the ultimate evil. Uh, when it goes into totalitarian persecution of uh, innocent people. Now, in our in our next session together on this issue, we're going to unpack all that I just said. 
we're going to look at how the law, please keep in mind the difference between Torah and law as I'm using it. When I make, when I use the word law, I'm referring to systems of jurisprudence or systems of legality or systems of government control or rules and regulations. Uh, I'm not talking about the Torah of God. The Torah is the heart of God. It, it comes from the root word hore, which is the word for parent. So David says, how I love your Torah. It, it has been my guide. It has been my comfort. When my mother and father threw me away, the Lord picked me up and his Torah, his word, became my guiding principle and the arm around me that loved me through the dark night and guided me through the day. That's the meaning of the Torah. So don't get confused about the law of God when I say law can be an instrument in the hands of the satanic. Uh, it can. The letter kills, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. The letter of the law kills. Paul says in Romans 5, the strength of sin is the law. What does he mean by that? He says, is, is God's law unrighteous? Well, he says, God forbid. Of course I'm not saying God's Torah is unrighteous. But there's a principle of legalism and injustice when it comes to the concept of mere mechanical justice that becomes an instrument of, of evil. And we have got to understand this, especially now in the era we live in and the day that we're facing, so that we do not, out of ignorance, become practitioners of unrighteousness in the name of of justice, because we are misusing justice. God help us. Father, please help us unpack these difficult but vitally important and ultimately liberating truths for the glory of your name and the ongoing of your kingdom. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.